sermon text this morning comes from 2 Peter chapter 1, and we'll read verses 1 through 4. 2 Peter 1, 1 through 4. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord as His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which you have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be made partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. To call our kids forward at this time. Okay, I want you to imagine something with me. Imagine that someone gave you an impossible chore to do. Let's say that you were told that you had to shovel all the snow out of your yard, out of the driveway, and off of the sidewalks, and you couldn't use a shovel to do it, you had to use a spoon. And you had to do it within an hour, or else you would get locked in your room for a whole year, no friends, no playing outside, no TV, no games, and nothing to eat every day, all day, but spinach. You'd think that's impossible, right? And it would be. That would be impossible. There's no way you could do it, and that means that no matter how hard you worked, you were going to end up in that room with spinach. Well, being saved from our sins and going to be with God in heaven is even harder, even more impossible than shoveling snow with a spoon. One time Peter asked Jesus, who can be saved? And Jesus answered him, with men, it is impossible. But with God, nothing is impossible. All things are possible with God. Now the verses that we just read from 2 Peter tell us how God has made it possible. And we learn three very important things from those verses. The first thing we learn, I just told you, that everything we need to be saved, and saved means to have our sins taken away, to have our hearts changed so that they love God, and to have the Spirit of God live within our hearts to make us children of God. Everything that we need to be saved, God has given to us. The second thing that we learn is that everything that God gives us, everything that we need to love and serve Him, because He is righteous. Righteous means that He always does what is right, and He loves it. You see, sometimes we do what is right because we don't have any other choice. Like you might obey mom and go to bed because she says, hey, go to bed. And you do it, but in your mind you're going, why does mom always make me go to bed so early? I was still playing with my toys. You did what was right, but you didn't like it. God does what is right because he loves it. And that means he is right always. And that, that's what it means when we say that God is righteous. You see, Jesus came to earth to live a perfect life. A life with no sin and to die on the cross so that God's people could be saved. 
Those are the things that our verse says that God gives us. Jesus bought those things with his life and his death. And that's why God is righteous when he gives us these things. He's keeping his promise to Jesus to save those that Jesus died for. And the third thing that we learn is that God wants us to learn about him. That's why we have Sunday school for you little ones. That's why we have catechism class for the bigger kids. That's why the 7th and 8th graders have confirmation class. That's why we have Sunday school class for the grown-ups too. And that's why we have the sermons in our church service. You go to school to learn how to read and write, how to count, how to add, and you come to church to learn about God, about the Bible, and what the Bible teaches us about ourselves, the world we live in, and what we must believe in order to go to heaven. That's how much God loves his children. Even though being saved is impossible to us, it isn't impossible for God. He has done everything that is needed, and he has given us everything that we need so that we can love him and serve him. And I hope you'll listen well to the rest of the sermon, because we're going to learn more about these things. Now, we're going to pray and then you can return to your seats. Heavenly Father, thy word is perfect, restoring the soul, making wise the simple, and enlightening the eyes of the blind. The power of God unto salvation for everyone that believes. We, however, are by nature blind and incapable of doing anything good, and thou wilt relieve only those who have a broken and contrite heart and who revere thy word. We entreat thee that thou wouldst illumine our darkened minds with thy Holy Spirit and give us a humble heart free from all haughtiness and carnal wisdom, in order that we, hearing thy word, may rightly understand it and regulate our lives accordingly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're beginning a series on Second Peter, which, Lord willing, will run up to the Sunday before Easter. This epistle is sort of Peter's dying will. He knows that he will soon seal his profession of faith in his own blood. Now, there are three issues that this epistle deals with. The first concerns the Christian's growth in grace and diligence in serving God, and that's covered in chapter 1. The second concerns false doctrine. We're taught how it works, how deadly it is, and how it is to be handled, and that's covered in chapter 2. And the third issue concerns Christ's return, which is covered in chapter 3. And there it refutes errors about Christ's second coming and teaches us how to be prepared for it. I think it's easy to see the straight line that runs through this epistle. If Christians are supposed to be prepared for Christ's return, and the way that we do that is by growing in grace, diligently serving God in all of our Christian duties, and being cautious and alert and aware about false doctrine. This morning we'll be looking at the first four verses of chapter 1, which contain Peter's greeting and salutation. Within this greeting and salutation, we can already see how God is laying the foundation for the content of the whole epistle. 2 Peter chapter 1 concerns the Christian's growth in grace. And our text tells us that everything that we need, everything that this growth might require, God has provided for us. And so our outline this morning runs as follows. All things that pertain to life and godliness are given to us by the power of God, by the righteousness of God, 
and through the knowledge of God. So by the power of God, our text tells us of all of the the workings, if you will, of our salvation. First, that it's by faith, and that in this faith, God grants us knowledge. Faith is not blind. Its eyes are opened, and it strives to see and to understand what it believes. Moreover, we're taught that this faith is a work of the righteousness of God. That's the cornerstone of the Christian faith, preserved in the reform system of doctrine. The righteousness which saves us is the righteousness of God. It's God's very own righteousness that saves us by faith. As Paul writes in Romans 1.17, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. I hope you can also see how the apostle in our text is arguing upward, so to speak. He's making statements that get progressively stronger. And when he comes to the climax, he says... His divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. In other words, every single thing that pertains to our lives as Christians is a gift of God. Nothing derives from ourselves. Nothing is a reward for good behavior. Nothing is earned. Nothing is merited. Everything comes directly from the hand of God as a gift. And at the head of this list of gifts is faith itself which someone has described as the hand by which we receive pardon. But that hand by nature is crippled and dead until it is enlivened by the power of God. The Bible clearly teaches this. Think, for example, of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. There we read, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now, this is one of those cases where A grammar lesson is unavoidable. The word it in verse 8 is a pronoun. A pronoun takes the place of a noun. I can see a smile on the face of the English majors. When you're trying to understand a statement with a pronoun, you need to identify the noun that the pronoun is standing in for. And the way that you do that is you look back in the sentence to the closest noun that agrees in gender and in number. He won't take the place of Linda, for example. It doesn't agree in gender. They won't take the place of Jimmy because it doesn't agree in number. You get the point. So when we see the word it, we're going to need to find the closest singular noun, and that noun is faith. So this passage tells us that our very faith is a gift of God. Our salvation is a work of God's grace, his favor upon those who have not merited it, and the hand by which we receive the gift is faith, and that faith itself is a gift. And so in the whole transaction of salvation, not a shred of it is of works, lest anyone should boast. Perhaps a stronger assertion of the same truth can be found in Philippians 1.29. There we read, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Now, the key phrase of that passage is, Unto you it is given to believe on him. The Greek word rendered believe, or given rather, explicitly means an unearned gift or show of favor. That's just another way of saying we have received his grace. What do you need for life and godliness? Well, at the very least, you're going to be need to put into a right relationship with God, and that means you're going to, be need, you're going to need to be shown his favor. His favor cannot be earned. We can't earn God's favor because we are sinners and we can't make satisfaction to God for our sins because we daily increase our debt of sin to God. 
And so, if we're ever going to be put into a right relationship with God, it's going to have to be exclusively an act of God's grace. And that's what our text tells us we have received. And that leads us directly to our second point, namely that all things that pertain to life and godliness are given to us by the righteousness of God. And we need to pay close attention to the wording here. Obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, besides being about as bold a statement of the deity of Christ as you could ask for, the Holy Spirit is plainly telling us here that obtaining faith is by the righteousness of God. Everything that we need for the Christian life, we receive as a gift of God, as an act, as an exercise of His sovereign power. But God doesn't just throw His power around willy-nilly. He always acts according to His own character. 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now what exactly is that text saying? Yeah, it's saying that God will forgive and cleanse those who repent. But it's saying a lot more than that. It's saying that God will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness because He is faithful and just. And that Greek word for just is the same word that's usually rendered righteous. Now ask yourself this. How does it declare God's righteousness when He forgives sins or cleanses from unrighteousness? Any other answer but the Reformed faith will leave you with a great big hole in your train of reasoning here. You see, the Bible teaches that Christ is the covenant representative of God's elect, His people. And as such, Jesus' whole life of perfect obedience and His substitutionary atonement is reckoned by God as the perfect obedience and satisfaction of His people. Our Heidelberg Catechism teaches us to acknowledge that I am righteous before God because God, quote, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, even so as if I never had had nor committed any sin. Yea, as if I had fully accomplished all that obedience which Christ has accomplished for me. So, in 1 John 1, 9, says that God is faithful and righteous to forgive us, it's saying that God has accepted the work of Christ on our behalf. For God not to forgive my sins and to not cleanse me from all unrighteousness would be to say that He hasn't accepted Christ's work on my behalf. Of course God forgives my sins, and of course God cleanses me from all unrighteousness. He's faithful. This is what he promised to Christ as a reward for his work as our mediator. At our Lord's baptism and at his transfiguration, the Father declared from heaven, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Christ's glorious resurrection was the divine stamp of approval on Christ's atoning death. You see, if you die, you stay dead because you're a sinner. But Jesus couldn't be held by death because he wasn't a sinner. Therefore, death had no power over him. His resurrection was proof that he had lived a life of 100% perfect obedience to the law of God. And this righteousness is imputed by God to those who believe as their very own righteousness. As if I never had had nor committed any sin. Yea, as if I had fully accomplished all that righteousness which Christ has accomplished for me. Scripture teaches that the guilt 
of the, the sins of the elect was imputed to Christ, and his righteousness is imputed to them. The Old Testament sacrificial system clearly declared this truth, this fact. Those sacrificial lambs were innocent. And the sinner, the guilty sinner, placed his hand on the lamb's head, signifying a transfer of the sinner's guilt to the lamb and the lamb's innocence to him. And then that lamb was killed. This was as clear a picture of imputation as you could ask for. Salvation by imputed righteousness, by the death of the innocent in the place of the guilty, was woven through the whole life of the Old Testament saints. Now, apart from the imputed righteousness of Christ, in other words, apart from God deeming Christ's obedience as mine, and Christ's death as a substitution for mine, how else can you say that God forgiving me is an evidence of his faithfulness and righteousness? You can't. Every other system but the Reformed faith smuggles good works in the back door at this point. They'll either say that, that grace puts you into a state of favor with God and that in this state you now have the opportunity to work, out, work for your salvation. Or they'll say that somehow uh, faith itself is a good work which God accepts in the place of perfect obedience to his law. Both approaches are dead wrong. Neither can explain why we are granted faith by God's righteousness. Look, you can explain anything by an appeal to God's power. But if you're going to appeal to his righteousness, you're going to need a logical argument. You're going to need a rational explanation. And only the Reformed faith gives you this. Our passage is teaching us that the righteousness of God is both our righteousness, and the grounds on which he grants us the gift of faith unto salvation. If you don't find that beautiful and comforting, I think you need to have your pulse checked. And we now come to our third point. All things that pertain to life and godliness are given to us through the knowledge of God. Knowledge is mentioned twice in our passage in verse 2 and in verse 3. In 2, it's knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And in verse 3, it's the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. Remember in our introduction, we mentioned that the theme of chapter 1 is the Christian's growth in grace. Now I'm going to say something that strikes me about as obvious as the fire in a forest fire, but for whatever reason seems to be overlooked almost to the point of denial. And that is, there can be no growth in grace, no growth in the Christian faith, without growth in the knowledge of the doctrines of the faith. Why do you think our reformers wrote catechisms? They understood that ignorance is the path to superstition, maybe, but it's not the path to growth in grace. There's no such thing as growth in grace without faith, and there's no such thing as a faith without content. We have creeds and confessions, and they are tools to help us learn and help us teach our faith. When we recite the creed every Sunday, we're professing belief in certain objective claims. We're confessing that our faith has content, which even if it's boiled down to the barest of bare bones is still 12 articles, 12 objective, non-negotiable statements. You're free to believe them or not, but you're not free to call yourself a Christian if you don't believe these statements. Now, sadly, Christendom is full of people who don't even remotely believe the Bible or the articles of the creed. And they stick around for two reasons. 
Either there's some social benefit to being on a church membership role, or regardless of what the scriptures teach about salvation not being by works, they think that they can earn brownie points with God. They might rarely, maybe never, attend church, but as long as their name's on a membership role, they can at least stand in polite society and say, I'm a member of such and such church. For them, the Christian faith has no meaning. Church membership serves a utilitarian purpose. Maybe it teaches kids to respect their parents and be good law-abiding citizens. But as a source of eternal truth, truth that governs every aspect of their life, not so much. A person whose faith hasn't shaped his family life, who can't muster regular attendance at church under the best of circumstances, shouldn't be surprised when his own children leave the church the first chance they get. Nor should he be surprised to find the beloved church of his childhood is in danger of closing its doors. If it wasn't good enough for you, why should it be good enough for anyone else? And while we're on the subject, I hear people complain all the time about the heavy-handed restrictions that some officials have placed on church attendance. And all I can think is, well, what do you care? You weren't attending before this stinking pandemic anyway. Now, what's all this rant about church attendance? What's that all about? Well, for one, attending church is about the easiest thing a Christian can do. And secondly, the church is the school of God. We're, what are we given? Knowledge? Where do you get that? The church is the school of God. This is where we learn about God, His Word, the doctrines of our Christian faith. You can't expect to learn without going to school. And if you opt to never go to school, then don't lie about how important education is to you. And don't talk about your Christian faith if that faith can't get you into church other than for a wedding or a funeral. And we've probably all encountered those disheartening statistics about how many church kids end up falling away from the faith as soon as they go off to college. You know what the reasons are? I'm prepared to say that there are only two. Two reasons. Parental and pastoral failure to educate the children in the Christian faith. And secondly, poor parental example of the Christian life in the home. I don't understand the surprise of parents and ministers when their youth quit attending church, begin hanging around with the bad crowd, engaging in premarital sex, and supporting causes directly opposed to the kingdom of God, when all they've ever gotten in 18 years at church is a handful of moral lessons. We don't send doctors into the operating room without equipping them with all the knowledge and skill which that life requires. But churches routinely send their little lambs out into a hostile world full of wolves and snakes without the tools needed to withstand the pressure. I mean, if you've never been taught the Christian doctrine of creation, how can you handle the anti-Christian doctrine of Darwinism? And more importantly, how can you stand strong against an entire industrial complex that mocks your faith as a fairy tale? If you've never been taught the biblical doctrine of the family, how are you going to withstand the world's philosophy which hates the family, mocks fatherhood, despises monogamy, and treats sex like a plaything? Simple answer, you won't. Now, as long as I have anything to do with it, we won't turn out ignorant catechumens here. I know that our confirmands may feel a bit overwhelmed sometimes by all the doctrinal content of the Heidelberg Catechism, but I will work till I bleed 
to help them understand their faith. They're not going to be able to accuse me on Judgment Day of neglecting their souls by leaving them ignorant of their Christian faith. If teachers graduated your kids without the ability to read and write, you'd want their heads. The task of teaching our children the Christian faith is more serious, more solemn, and more impactful of their future because it affects their eternal destinies, not just the ability to find a decent job. If dumbing down curriculum is a travesty of our children's school education, dumbing down their Christian education is absolutely criminal. Strangely enough, though, when it comes to the faith, often the most vocal advocates of higher learning want Christian teaching reduced to silly moral lessons that could be taught without the Bible. Paw Patrol can teach you how to share and be nice. You don't need the Bible for that. We belittle God's love for our children when we act as if knowledge of the doctrines of our Christian faith are not for them. God has not called all of his children to become doctors of theology, but he has certainly not called any of them to be intellectual wool gatherers. And the Christian faith seems to be the only field where such a lazy attitude is encouraged. And can you imagine enrolling in medical school with the dream of becoming a brain surgeon only to hear your professor say on the first day, man, it doesn't really matter what you believe about the nervous system or human anatomy as long as you sincerely want to help people. If you had any sense, you'd run for the hills right then and there because you'd realize that you can't help people as a brain surgeon without precise and accurate knowledge of the nervous system and human anatomy. All the sincerity in the world will not amount to a hill of beans if you don't know the basics of human anatomy. In fact, it'd be right to question your sincerity if you were willing to substitute warm feelings about helping people for the actual skill required to do so. Look, why oppose medical ignorance in the doctor's office, automotive ignorance in the mechanic's shop, or agricultural ignorance in, in farming regulatory committees, and yet give a free pass to biblical and doctrinal ignorance in the pulpit and in the pew. I think there's only one reason why, and that's because you don't really believe in the content of the Christian faith, nor that the Bible is what it claims to be. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, how can anyone meaningfully profess to believe the truth without any knowledge of the objective statements that this truth claim has made? You can't. My whole life I've heard ministers complain about biblical ignorance in the pew. People who have been in church for 20 and 30 years and still cannot give even the simplest, most basic exposition of the Christian faith. And yet the same ministers have never preached a doctrinal sermon in their lives. Now the second reason that we lose our young people is a poor parental example of the Christian life in the home. How many young people are sent to church by parents who don't attend themselves? That's been going on in this country for at least 75 years. We all talk about the life lessons we've learned from our parents. We value the things we grew up with because our parents valued them. No kid is going to grow up valuing church as something important when fishing, camping, or TV was always more important to dad and mom. Period. Full stop. Read your Bibles and read church history. This trend of the youth falling away, that is not the norm. God has always grown his church from within in the line of generations. Now, many contemporary churches focus almost exclusively on 
outreach, as they call it, which is trying to win new converts to the faith. Now that's good, and that is in keeping with the Great Commission to value soul winning and the discipleship of new converts. But this is never at odds with the church's mission of nurturing the little disciples she already has in her care. I grew up in church, and I've watched a couple generations grow up and walk away. And the church's philosophy has generally been just to replace the lost children with adult converts whose own children are just as likely to walk away. God has entrusted our children to us for the purpose of raising up a godly seed. We are told to instruct them when we are sitting in our house and when we are walking by the way and when we lie down and when we rise up. The family is a creation of God and the religious training of children is its primary purpose. Robust religious training of children makes for a strong church. Why do you think Frieden's has a membership that's four or five generations deep? Now, if we neglect the next generation by failing to teach them and failing to provide them with a godly example in the home, God may justly shut us down and write Ichabod over our doors. He's done that to thousands of other churches. John, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, Everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. Covenant children have been given much. They have been given access to the Bible to the sacraments, to the teachings of Scripture, and to a life of fellowship with God and His people. And if we as parents do not do all that is in our power to set before our children an example of the Christian faith by reading the Bible to them and with them, by helping them learn their catechism, by praying with them and for them, by setting an example of conscientious use of the sacraments and faithful attendance at church, then we are merely fattening them up for the slaughter And when they stand condemned before God on Judgment Day for trampling their privileges underfoot, their blood will be required at our hands because it was our covenant duty to ensure that they got what God had provided. Our text tells us that God has granted us access to the knowledge of God. This comes to us through the reading, studying, and preaching of the Scriptures. God grants His children faith, and He plants them into His family, the church. He gives us the scriptures, the sacraments, prayer, and the fellowship of the saints. Look at our passage. Righteousness, grace, peace, knowledge, glory, virtue, great and exceeding promises, and escape from the lustful corruption of the world. These are the things which our text says are provided to those to whom God has granted faith. Now, if these things can't set you on the path of life and godliness, nothing can. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who has granted unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the glorious revelation of the gospel, cause thy word to dwell in us richly, we beseech thee, and fill us with the knowledge of thy will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that we may walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray.